have set the pace Everything's finally falling into place We'll be smiling as we move on through the years She'll be perfect, we'll be perfect Life's getting more perfect each day Oh, for him and me And our growing family yeah. I don't want you today uh when richard hillman reached out to me and told me about the show i said i have to have her on the show so first of all welcome i begin my shows by asking uh my guests who or what are you celebrating today and i'm going to ask you the same thing who or what are you celebrating today um right now i'm celebrating an incredible opportunity to share the story of baggage at the door off broadway at amt theater and the joy of meeting you. Ah, uh, well, thank you. Uh, but I, I, when I'm looking over your resume, is there anything in this business that you haven't done <laughs> that you that is still on the bucket list that you say you are because you've done it, you've done it all. And I love the fact that, from my perspective, and of course, you and I are just meeting for the first time. Uh, it seems to me as if you've taken control of your career, and you're creating a career that's working for you. That is a, a lovely way to frame it. Yeah, you know, I didn't mean to be an independent creator, producer type person. I didn't mean to, it's just, it kind of worked out that way. And, you know, uh, needs must, then all of a sudden you build skills you didn't know you had and, and you turn your usual gifts into facilities for other kinds of creation and collaboration. And yeah, here we go. So 
I um I didn't mean to be a solo writer and I'm looking forward to collaborating. I'd like to work on stage with other people again. It's been a great experience, but I do miss I do miss big big musicals. Well, let's face it, even uh, because I do a lot of solo work myself. Yeah. Even when you're in the spotlight doing your thing, um it's truly never a one person show because there's a collaborative team surrounding you, building you up to make sure that everything's going to work perfectly night after night after night. So thank God you've got you've got a great team of people working around you. Thank you. I, I really do feel very fortunate. And it is it is a small and intense team, as I often do work in small and intense ways. So the run crew for Baggage at the Door, it's like it's the band, which is a three-piece band helmed by Jacob Stedley with Chris McWilliams on percussion and Magda Kress on bass. And then my tech magician, Brent Michael Jones in the booth and me. And like pretty much that's it. So it is small and intense. And I feel really, really fortunate that as a words person, each of the 10 songs has its own composer collaborator attached to it. So the burden of the creation was not on me alone, thank goodness, because I don't know how y'all folks do that. <laughs> well, we're going to have a little fun here. Uh, before, at the beginning of my shows, um, I lay out three mystery cards. I haven't even looked at these cards. So we're going to pull a mystery question, and we're going to see what path this takes us down. So pull the number one through three, and we'll get started. Three. And the question is... What's the most illegal thing that you've ever done? <laughs> okay, I'm from the Midwest. Um, and back in the day in where I grew up on the, on the north coast of Ohio, Ohio has a north coast of, of uh, Lake Erie, okay? It's like vacation land. Um, a lot of those homes and houses along the lake shoreline are just summer rentals. Okay. And back in the day, there wasn't much to do up there because it's either beach land or farm country. Like that's it. Okay. It's Ohio. Right. So the only thing to really do in high school was to go parking, which is what the kids did. Okay. Very innocent, very sweet. Like you used to read about in the fifties, but like not in the fifties, I'm, I'm slightly younger than that. Um, but the most illegal thing that I did was sneak into private property. There's a, there's a, a very famous mansion on the shoreline in between, um, Cleveland, Ohio, and Sandusky, where um, a man who developed the drop ceiling, okay, like he's the inventor of the drop ceiling for like construction elements. He lives there in like a super, super private place. And I we sneaked in and like made out on a hill and like thought we were so bad. I'm so tame. That's the most illegal <laughs> well, thing. I've ever we're not going to hear this on any other show. So thank you for sharing that. So you're from Ohio. Yeah, I mean, we bounced around a little bit when I was a kid. I, I used to call myself an American gypsy, but now I, I prefer, I, I've been a New Yorker longer than I've lived anywhere else. So I, I completely, I, I'm a New Yorker now. But yeah, I went to high school and cut my teeth as a performer in the north coast of Ohio in between Cleveland and Toledo. So and based on what I've read about you, I think that I can on a, uh, openly say this. Congratulations this week on Ohio in the news. Thank you. It yeah. was a, it is a a huge relief as someone who has to vote long distance to see that the reproductive rights of women in Ohio are being protected further and better. Do you still vote in Ohio? No, that would be very illegal since I'm in Ohio. <laughs> so you are truly a New Yorker right now. Yeah. So I asked for a photograph of you as a kid, yeah. and I love this photo. First oh, of all, you haven't changed a bit. 
And it's you, weird, right? <laughs> yeah. So tell us the story, you know, about this family and growing up in Ohio. So this picture was taken in San Francisco. Um, that's my father, David Aber, Reverend David Aber, and my mom, Gwen Aber, um, also a natural redhead, uh, although she tends to prefer to think of herself as a strawberry blonde, which mm -hmm. is fine. Um, but, you know, that's so much alike. Yeah, it's weird. And then when you see us all in person, like if I'm standing next to my dad, you're like, oh, my gosh, like the bones of my face are so similar to his. Um, uh, this is before my brother joined the family. And this is when we were living in San Francisco, where my father had um, an associate pastor position down in the Sunset District. What, what, what denomination? Presbyterian. Okay. Balanced, liberal, likes a time frame. Perfect. Uh, did your family move around a lot? Just enough, just enough. Yeah. So uh, I was born in San Francisco. Then we lived in Chicago in the Northwest Quadrant. Uh, and then we lived up the Allegheny River outside of Pittsburgh in the New Ken Arnold area for Pittsburghers. And then we moved to Brown's country, but remained Steelers at heart. So when did it begin for you? I mean, did it grow from, some people say it was listening to cast albums. Some people, I'm, I'm a television baby. I grew up in a television household. So, but where did it begin for you? When did you start to think that's something I want to be a part of? Well, I think my mom and I definitely watched the soap operas when I was a little kid in San Francisco. And I remember being enamored of the storytelling there. But it was very clear before my brother was born, okay, in, in Chicago, because he was born in Chicago, they, they took me as still a, a single child to see, and this will tell you exactly how old I am. At, when I was five years old, I saw the first opening of the national tour of Cats in Chicago at age five. They brought a pillow for me to sit on and everything. And I, I don't remember the experience of watching it, but I do know the story where I, at intermission, I turned to my mom and said, I want to be up there with the cats. And she, of course, thought, oh, sweetheart, you like the kitty babies? <laughs> and I said, because I've been exactly the same person my whole life, <clears throat> what I said was, I want to be up there with the cat. You know. And so they marched me down from the nosebleed seats where we were sitting uh, and, and said to a, a very generous usher, my mother carrying me down said, um, excuse me, sir, I know this is unorthodox, but would it be okay if my, if my daughter stood on the stage? Can you believe the audacity of my mom? She's always been one of my biggest fans. Tell me he said, yes, it was okay. Could you believe? No, no, he did not. Of course, he said, no, that's union guidelines. But he did give her permission to let me touch the stage. Wow. So I have a visceral sense memory of that decoupage garbage set from mm -hmm. age five. And I... I, I wrote my college essay about this experience, but now when I think back, what it actually did for me was not just tell me this is where you're supposed to be, but but to feel that, like I'm kind of a synesthesiast anyway, like my senses are always uh, extra and overlappy, but to feel how it's not just being up there with the cats that was attractive anymore. It's joining all of the layers of magic that stack mm. up to add theater storytelling. That and I that was it. That was my calling was very specific. And it was from then on just figuring out how to how to make it work. I love the fact that you said this. I had a great mentor. I've talked about her on this show many times, uh, Miss Florence Epps in my home. I grew up in South Carolina. And she was such a great we would have uh lessons in her little playhouse in her backyard. 
And uh, if if a name would come up or an event or something, she would stop me and say, tell me about this. You know, tell me who this person is or what they are known for. And if I didn't know, she would close the book and she would say, I'll see you next Wednesday. Know who they are when you come back. And she instilled in me that every time I stepped on stage or in front of a camera, I am carrying the mantle of every person that has gone before me. And it seems to me that you have that same feeling, you know, on some level subconsciously at that age as well. But when, you know, what was the next steps for you and your mom in which you said, this is something I really want to be a part of? It's more than just being up there with the cats. Yeah, it is. Uh, I guess, let's see, let me get through Pittsburgh, right? And then, and then we did, they did their best, you know, like as a young family and then with two children to figure out a way to get me into classes that were being run by someone who taught at Carnegie Mellon. So they would drive me down on the weekends and I would have scene study class, you know, I mean, like children's classes. Mm -hmm. and had a taste of understanding memorization and um, the effect of gamma rays on marigold. You know, like we did some of the traditional work for young people, understanding text. And I have a very clear memory of watching a scene being done by two, two girls in this class that I was in where they had not read the whole scene. They just like kind of skimmed it and they didn't know the ending of the scene. And then watching the like information drop them and have that organic hit and we all were wrapped with it. I mean, like, could you believe? Acting, look, acting. But for them, they were like, no, we really didn't read. But I realized then, oh, the skill is capture those things and recreate, right? It's, re it's create and recreate is what, we, is what we do, right? It's not just cause and effect or, or, you know, push and pull. It's recreation, capture and recreate, like a genie in a bottle, right? And that would have been in seventh grade. By the time we moved to where my parents live now on the north coast of Ohio, I'm moving into high school. Lucky for me, right in the little town where I went to high school was an outpost of Bowling Green State University. And they had a very strong theater company there. The Firelands Outpost, Firelands College of Bowling Green State University had a great theater department at the time. And they were doing a, a co-production with the Carol Crane Children's Theater. I was wow. new in town and I booked the lead in a three-person musical. At wow. 14. At 14. In Frank uh autobiography, he talks about that moment of standing in the wings and stepping out of the darkness into the light and what that was for, like for him. What was that first moment like for you when you stepped out of the darkness into the light in front of an audience and what your memories are of that moment? You know, it's, it's really funny you ask that, Richard. I kind of go through this experience every time. I know that sounds a little corny. No, no, not at all. But particularly right now in Baggage at the Door, because I wear so many hats as creator and co-producer and blah, blah, all of these things. I love the waiting in the wings and I kind of fart around backstage. You know, I take, I'm bad. I'm a bad actor. I like take selfies. I like forget to breathe. You know, like the last text message from my stage manager from places is always, please breathe before your first line, you know? But there is that wonderful sense of sacred space mm -hmm. right before you go out. And I do remember that very plainly from the diaries of Adam and Eve at Firelands College you know, wow. <laughs> um, and and when Eve emerged for the first time and you feel the light um, and when you're called to be a performer, there's something in you that just activates. Right. Calling it turning it on is not the same thing. It's a it's it's a it's a, 
organic response to stimulation. The light is on you. You join the project. You join the show. You inhabit. You you breathe life into the character, and you move forward into the light. My parents have talked about how shocked they were. I mean, I always said I wanted to be a performer person, but I never really got the chance until this time. And good, lucky for me, I had been given this innate ability to join the light. And I, I still feel like that when I get to join the That's stage. Incredible. Uh, there comes a point in any performer or entertainer's life where there's a fork in the road, mostly a fork, um, and that's either L.A. or New York. And thank God the strike is over. So uh, uh, thank God. Uh, but for you, did you want to go to New York to pursue a career as an actress or did you want to go to L.A. and try it there? I have always been gunning for the Broadway honey, I've always been gunning for the Broadway. And I, the joke is since we started in California and I've been moving east my whole life, right? That I was aiming to come here. But you know, I, I think that Hollywood is a little bit different when I was coming through the ranks, you know, in the early 2000s. I was, I did not look like the usual girl. They were always trying to straighten my hair, dye it blonder, you know, my face is too whatever, my figure is too whatever, you know, fill in the blanks. And happily, you know, the business has expanded to allow for other possibilities, but I kind of sniffed out LA like one time, went to like two parties and was like, I did not enjoy the experience of not really trusting where I stood with people in a conversation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. New York just tell you where you're at. And I appreciated that. <laughs> so you know, it's very interesting that you mentioned all these things. I'm reading uh, Barbara Streisand's autobiography now. And when she was 16, she found out through show business, which was the trade paper at the time, that they were holding audition for the national tour of uh, The Sound of Music. Mm. And she sent her headshot uh, and a resume uh, for the role of Liesl. And uh, she got a call. And they said, we want to know who the person is who is crazy enough to send her headshot in for this production. But she said it made her even stronger in terms of wanting to go forward in this business instead of deterring her. Uh, have there been moments in your own uh, <laughs> a path where, and I, we're going to get into details of your show in a few moments, but where anything came along that tried to deter you from being uh, your authentic self and being on your path? Yeah. I mean, yes, I think it is no matter what what body or, or hair or face you get born into, I think there's always going to be someone who doesn't appreciate you or uh, can't see past some element of you to like really recognize the gifts you might offer otherwise professionally. Um, super coded language. But, you know, I, I had I had a, somebody I really respected in the casting department um, tell me when I was 22, Dana, you won't work for 20 years. So figure something else out to do until it's your turn. And I was like, what? I was 22. I was just graduated from school, you know, with great marks from Syracuse University showcasing, you know, the works. But to be told by a professional that my look, which has always been the same mm -hmm. with a exotic figure and wild hair and strong bone structure with fortitude, you know, leading lady plus character type equals matron. I'm not sure, but they were pretty sure that that's what that meant. And it um, really ticked me off, to use the old phrase. It really did, and it made me 
distressed and I railed against that identity that, that, you know, those things echo in your head when you're a young actor, like, you'll never work in this bit. You know, like when people say things to you, like you don't fit here, you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. Well, that's kiss, isn't it? That's nonsense, you know? So then I started trying to find a way to market myself as an interesting choice for fill in the blank, which of course seems ridiculous now that I'm all grown up, like that's silly, but you still see it. I was never going to be a chorus girl and that's okay. Um, that's awesome, actually, because thank goodness I don't have the chops to be a dancer dancer. Not like that. God bless my sister-in-law, a professional showgirl in Las Vegas. She's the real deal. OK, like, my God, you know, God bless. Go. Godspeed. Like, let somebody else do the high kicks, you know. But there's 100 percent a career for everybody, no matter how you look. I absolutely. I totally agree with you. Uh, how did the move happen for you to get to New York? I, uh, out of Syracuse University, did a couple of auditions, you know, the usual as well. So. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, you know, I booked an acting apprenticeship at the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia, oh. where my mother grew up down in Upper Darby, which is just off the main line, a little further south. So I had family there and I'd gotten this incredible opportunity to be in a company of four actors for a year. So it was the Dorothy Haas scholarship to be an acting apprentice at the Walnut Street Theater, where we ran four children's productions in rep for 10 months mm -hmm. while understudying all of the main stage productions at the Walnut Street Theater, which was wild. Because by the time the spring came around, I guess it was the early, the early spring, I think it was like March right in there, mm -hmm. um, they were doing Brighton Beach memoirs. I was not going to be cast in that as a regular person, right? But it would be fine for me to be the understudy, which is what they want us to do in the track anyway. But they had a more appropriate understudy who was uh, also an understudy for the opera company in town. Would you know, the woman that I was understudying, the, the supporting lead, fell ill, terribly ill, and could not perform. She had like a particular kind of laryngitis that was extremely rare and hard to treat. Wow. And the opera girl got pulled from her first gig to cover the opera. So she was gone. And so they had to default to their 22 year old second choice understudy who got thrust on stage opposite these very professional Philadelphian actors to carry Brighton Beach memoirs for eight performances. God bless you. Is that where you got your equity card or did that happen much later? It happened retroactively. They held the points for me until I asked for them which was a cute little loophole that I utilized. Um, and it really allowed me to do some other chops building work as a young non-union actor until I said, okay, I think equity, actually equity sent me a letter saying, dear Dana, we think you've earned enough points that you may no longer perform unless you join the union. And that was my sign. So I called the Walnut and I said, Hey, you guys, thanks for giving me this opportunity to hold my points. It's time cash them in. Let's do this. You were smart enough to know that. I, I went to see a production um, a, a couple of months ago uh, at uh, Surflight. Uh, mm. And one of the actresses who was phenomenal, um, she is a non-equity actress uh, in a cast of equity actors because they, they split it up a little bit. Mm. And, and I told, and I said, I'm really surprised that you're not equity. And she said, by choice, she says, I'm, you know, no uh, equity. I'm a I'm a proud member of Actors Equity. I you know, but she said she's getting more work this way than she would have been able to do uh, becoming Equity, and and I asked this for some of the uh, actors and actresses who have been on this show. It 
there comes a point where it's either an asset or a hindrance based on the timing of your career and where you are on that ladder. When that moment happened, was it a blessing or a hindrance? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's one of those funny, you know, choose your own adventure moments where you, you know, and I, I held off as long as I could. And I took advantage of the opportunities that, you know, you get given opportunities, you get given gifts and you're given opportunities and you decide what to do with them. Right. And, you know, I, I don't regret at all the time that I took doing the work that I took as a non-union actor, it gave me the chance to figure out myself who I was, you know, I was told I wasn't going to work. So then when you get the chance to work, then you have to really think about how did you get this opportunity? What roles were you being cat? What, why was I such an asset to have this, this internal female fortitude that would let me be a wonderful cover for X, Y, and Z people, even though as I came at a, at a value, right, as a non-union performer, but I could hang with the heavy hitters. These are the things that I got to learn when I was still non-union. To mm. join the equity union, let me understand uh, I guess it let me kind of understand my own worth, right? So that when you enter the foray, you go, this is my first equity audition, slightly less terrifying to kind of say, I'd already done some of that kind of internal processing and the kind of claiming the gifts that I was given and the, the skills that I've been honing to kind of join the ranks. So the universe told you it was time and you were ready. Uh, so did you come to New York with your equity card? No, no. No, I held off as long as I possibly could. Okay. So when you first got to New York, did you know, how did you uh, learn uh, the ropes, so to speak, uh, how to get uh, seen by casting directors? And uh, did you have an agent or a manager or all of those things that it takes for any young actor or actress to come to New York? Um, I like to tell people who are creating their own work, right? This is something I'm just coming out of classes earlier today, so it's on my mind. But I like this metaphor. There's a lot of ways to make pizza, okay? there You can make a flatbread pizza. You can do the hand-tossed. You can make a bagel bite. They're all kind of pizza. There's a lot of ways to get nourishment in the form of a pizza-shaped bread product, okay? I kind of feel like that about the business. There's mm -hmm. a lot of ways to get to where you want to go and there's no one path or else we I, you know sometimes back in the day we got taught there was like a ladder or like steps that you take to do x y and z i haven't found that to be necessarily true um what i have found is any number of people in my circles who have done completely wildly different trajectories in the business i'm dodging your question because i don't have a good answer for it i i feel like my career has been quite a choose your own adventure. And, and it's really wild that I'm in this interesting intersection of my professional career where I have not ever had a manager or an agent on my back before to kind of, I always used to think I wanted to hold hands with them and run through the playground and see who could knock that, you know, like I used to think, but I love that. Silly. I mean, but yes, but it was, that was not an attractive concept when I was really gunning to find representation. And you kind of shrug and you go, okay, but that doesn't change the gifts that I have to offer and the assets that I've been training up. You find another way, you know, you just figure it out. And for me, that became, you know, these small productions that I built up and brought all of my friends into and turned into a concert or whatever, which then expanded into my producing and blah, blah, blah. But when I first moved to the city, I don't think I ever figured it out. I think that, that you know, learning the ropes is a continual game especially as the business is changing so radically. 
like you just mentioned, the strike being over. I mean, we're we're reconfiguring what the business means like every couple of Absolutely. months. Every day. And it's been really, don't you feel that the last few years have been such, it's been such a crazy roller coaster with the pandemic and now these strikes and, uh, you know, it's just been a weird time in the business. Yeah. And you can see it, of course, in the numbers when we talk about when we talk about box office and and things. And, and it's got to be crazy for the people in these classes I was just teaching this morning who are looking forward to moving to the city and what kind of a, you know, experience they're going to be walking into with those of us who've been around a minute going, honey, you have no idea what it used to be like. You know, I came to New York in 1979. It was very different. Um, but I want to talk about one of the other hats that you wear and that's you're a writer. And uh, were you always a writer? Was that uh, going hand in hand with the acting? How did the writing begin to happen for you? Uh I like to think that I've always been a storyteller. Um, you know, when they were training me up as a kid, as a, as a vocalist, my pipes are very flexible and have great range. And they wanted me to do opera. And I was very clear to them. I did not enjoy telling stories in the opera context. Scandalized my voice teachers, but I didn't prefer it. I preferred the musical theater storytelling style. I just liked it better. And so then I geared my career that way. I did not fall into being a writer until I went through like a life crisis and I was trying to like process stuff onto paper. I'd, I'd, I'd driven myself into the ground in a particular way and I needed help processing. And because I was stupid enough to not have professional help, what I did have was a notepad and paper. Uh, and, and so then these things, these thoughts, these feelings that I would isolate and then put onto paper, I would look at them and I would write them late at night, you know, like one does. Uh, over a glass or two. And then I would wake up and over coffee, read them and go, oh, these are not bad. And it started from there. And then you grow in your confidence that for me, my first draft is not terrible. <laughs> um, mm. And the, the goal of the first draft is not the same as the goal of the first play version or the rewrited version or the main stage rewrite version. And all of those different levels of the writing has their own value. And um, I kind of fell into it accidentally, to be honest. I didn't mean well, to be a writer. <laughs> I was a much more amused for a long time. Um, were you always a, a journaler or did you keep a diary or any of those things that happened before these life events happened that you began to write about? And were you writing about them to uh, I'm going to sound like a, a psychologist for a moment, uh, to dig deep into the psyche of why these things were happening in your life? I'm a terrible journaler. I hate diaries. I'm garbage. The like morning pages. I tried so hard. I tried so hard. I'm not. Do <laughs> it's it, I know some people do. Some people don't. You know, and you think you think and I do understand the, the worth of those pages. I really do. I just really wish I was uh, more consistent. Um, so that's that answer. No, I was not a, a like a constant journaler. If anything, I uh, am a person who, if I'm going through something, I'll call my mom or my bestie and kind of like do the, the verbal diarrhea version of the thing as a living diary. I 100% storyteller. I recently texted to my, my best friend who lives in London, a long thing on WhatsApp just because she asked me like a question that I didn't have time to answer. And then I wrote her this long thing 
And I say, I'm doing this because I need a written record of this time. So I do it in more like a casual, like texting context as opposed to a formal journaling. So like kind of yes and no. And in terms of the beginning origins of the, the writing processing, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I was like really, uh, I'm self-aware, right? And, and But even when I got into actual therapy therapy, she was like, you're a pretty self-aware person. So like, what are you doing? You know what I mean? But as a self-aware person who was hung up on some stuff that was then causing havoc in my life, it was, it seemed like smart, smart business for me to find words to articulate those feelings to to myself. And then again, when I looked at them the next day, I went, oh, this isn't just about me anymore. This relates to other people's processes and, and their, their stuff. And then the life is no longer just about a, a therapeutic processing. The, mm-hmm. the work itself was elevated past that and meant to be moving into a different form. It was a really wild experience, to be honest. It did not mean to be a writer. But was there an aha moment for you when you said, I want to put this on stage. I want to get, the, uh, and, I, and I'm talking specifically now about your current production, uh, that you wanted to share this story with a wider audience. And you could have gone two directions. You, you say you're not a writer. You're first and foremost an actress, uh, an entertainer, a performer. Um, you could have written a book, uh, but you decided that you wanted to put this on stage. What was that moment that you felt that you wanted to do this this is a two-part question. And did you share this idea with other people uh, before you started to forge ahead with it? The thing that happened that caused me to write these things was that I had self-destructed my personal relationship. I had driven out the person who'd stuck by me and, and stuck with me as I was trying to work these things out, these inner demons, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I had successfully self-sabotaged. What a weird success, Right. You know, and the self-fulfilling prophecy nature, this thing that we do and, you know, and, and you're so, you're so smart, you're so with it, you're so together, but like, why are you tanking this part of your, of your life that you need for, for balance and nourishment, right? What happened was the aha moment, I, by, the, by the time that situation resolved, which was two weeks later, my partner returned and said, I, you know, whatever he said and said, I think we should take another look at this or whatever. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have left and whatever, whatever. And then we had to get through that. And, and it, in this conversation of us kind of coming back together, I said, by the way, while you were gone, I started this project and I think I need to finish it. And he went, okay. And it was pretty much that simple. Um, Cause by that point I would had six things, six poems. I mean, I really kind of pooped him up pretty quick. I needed to, I needed to get them out my system so that I could have a clearer head about the whole thing. And why was I self-sabotaging and where did it come from? Again, the therapy helps, right? Therapy works. But before I got to that point in the process, I was only doing things on paper. I uh, happened to go to see a friend's cabaret or a collection of cabarets. This is back in the day when everyone was doing like new work in these collections kind of a thing. They were really, really popular for like a few years. And I'm so, so lucky because I happened to go like, you know, brokenhearted into the city you know, with a beat face and the perfect outfit, you know, like all the thing, like super masked to go to a professional event. You know what I mean? And happened to sit at a table with some people who were like, girl, you are not okay. Like what's going on. And as a result of being at this table with these, the people that were there at the right time, I said, huh, maybe these poems are actually songs. Could that be possible? And then because of my work, 
as a muse for new composers at the NYU Tisch Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program. I just had a lot of colleagues for whom I'd done boatloads of work and interesting creation with them over, you know, a decade. Ended up kind of approaching some of these people that I felt I could trust with my personal story and ask them, would you like to collaborate with me on this thing? I don't know what the thing's going to be yet, but I have an idea that it might be like a show about like PTSD, which I'd just been diagnosed with and blah, blah. And that's how the show came to be, is that those creators said, yes, Dana, we will join you in this collaboration. And 10 different writing teams joined me as composer to set my poem words or transmute my poem words into lyrics. And those are the 10 songs in Baggage at the Door. Wow. Now I'm going to ask a question and you can choose how much you want to give away. Uh, this is a teaser for the show, uh, okay. obviously. Um, but tell me, uh, and, uh, and again, this is all in the show. I don't want to give away too much about January's. Oh yeah. Tell you about January's. So um, the, this it's important to note that baggage at the door is let's say 95% autobiographical. But in telling the story theatrically, I wanted to build in some um, distance for myself as so that I could inhabit the character as a performer as opposed to like myself, Dana Aber, telling the story. I didn't want it to be like a narrative. So it's 100% structured to be a theatrical play. So I play a character called the girl who just looks a lot like, talks a lot like, thinks a lot like Dana Aber. <laughs> So for me as a human, and then also for the character in the play, um, Januaries are, are weirdly cursed. There's a history of, of uh, near-death experiences in Januaries that were unbelievable and terrifying and made my parents want to like airlift me back to Ohio and wrap me in cotton bunting, you know, from New Year's Eve until February 1st. So uh, it, it ended up being that after like the... I think it was after the third, that you might have been the second near-death experience. You know, it's like right after the holidays. It's mm -hmm. the bleakest month of the year. And you just have like January 1st and then everyone goes into hiding and everything is miserable. I started to wear uh, sparkly jewelry, rhinestones. as kind of some like evil eye talisman. And I used to work in an Israeli restaurant. So what I understand about the tradition of the evil eye and the reason why I started to do this thing, you draw attention to the special thing to avoid negative energy. Because if you claim it as the special, then the, the deflection is built in. Wow. So the rhinestones became my version of an evil eye protection, protection spell against the scary, awful things that happened to me as a person in January. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, when you... What was your process putting this all together? Uh, did you, as it progressed, did you try things out for friends, uh, uh, colleagues? How did you get to the point where you had the completed project? Because you, uh, right off the bat, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you won a, uh, a, a festival, I guess, and you took the show to Colorado. Yeah, so... Mm, I've got these wonderful collaborator composers to join the project. And what ended up being, it's so funny because I have, I have the collection of poems from the first 
living room reading at the Dixon Place Lounge. And this says at the top, perusal copy, please return to Dana. So I have the original essays and the collages that match them in this like formal booklet that I printed out for people, you know, very downtown, you know, yeah. see where the show started, but it exists in its, in its purest form. These songs were built before the libretto was written. And my composers were like super bugging out about this idea. This is very atypical about how to build a show, right? Usually you have a storyline and then you like slot in songs at heightened moments. I told them, nah, don't worry about that. I want to articulate these crystallized emotional experiences that I have written out in poem form or essay poem or whatever, whatever they could be typed as and musicalize those without any concern for what comes before this, your song or what comes after your song. I said, that's not your problem, it's my problem. God bless these people for trusting me because what ended up happening was I had 10 individual songs that I could string on a necklace like different colored beads, right? In whatever order I wanted. And I shifted them around multiple times to, to try in an effort to find the correct narrative structure for what the piece would end up growing into being. How so, did you choose uh, each composer? Uh, I mean, because uh, each one has their own style that they're bringing to this. Um, did you go in and say, this is the feel that I want for this? Or did you allow them to create what they created uh, without any involvement of yours other than the fact that you had written the, uh, the poems or were you hands-on with each one of them? It's a different process with each composer, to be fair. Um, and the people that that joined the project, team baggage, as I call us, um, they either had worked with me or knew written or had written for me in the past, like from NYU or in other various forms and functions, understood my instrument, the tricks that I can pull off, the flexibility, the range, blah, blah, blah. Like they knew me well enough that writing for me wasn't a task writing for this this person, this this vessel. And as a collaborator, every experience was different. So one, one of the, the poems is called Trauma Monster. Nobody wanted to touch this thing with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> Nobody wanted to talk about the darkest, scariest part of my psyche that I gave a name to and like wanted to expose her for being the liar that she is, you know, and all these horrible things that she does because she's the trauma monster and she's the worst. Except I had one collaborator who said, that's the only one I want. That's the only one. I don't want to write a song about any of the other things. I want trauma monster. So I kind of feel like the collaborators that joined Baggage at the Doors project in its infancy were attached to the project for some other, you know, reason of their own. And that meant that whatever that reason was, as we felt out the creation of those pieces had to be individualized for each person. This is personal work, right? And so they had to trust me in the process and I had to trust them in their creation, which obviously I do. I'm not a composer. So that magic belongs to them. <laughs> and coming together to build the songs was specific. One person I kind of said, I, you know, I kind of feel like this is like a music box thing. And Things I Broke is just, it's one of the best songs in the show. How long did it take from you starting this project until it was on the boards? Mm, eight months. Wow, that's pretty fast. 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 I'm, uh, 
Um, I'm I'm learning to claim this identity as writer, but I also have some weird parts of as a writer that I I am I'm reluctant to kind of say with pride. I'm a very fast creator. When I have an idea, they're just they're ready to go. Um, and I've seen that in other areas as my writing work has progressed. Um, I stew on something, maybe I think about it, I think about it, I think about it, and then when it's time to go, and it's out. So. Baggage at the Door's first draft at the Dixon Place Lounge, which is which precedes the one festival version, by the way, by a year and a half. Oh my God, I think it's actually less than that. So I did I did that in August, okay? And then I did two versions of a different arrangement at the Pit Loft, which is a rental space in Chelsea, okay? And then I got it, I did a, a main stage version at Dixon Place for a one night only opportunity in another version as I tried to grow, as I tried to let the piece breathe then it got into the one festival and I said, okay, I need, I need help. I need to add a new collaborator. I'm not a director. I wear many hats, but no, I don't have this kind of vision and I needed a dramaturg. So I was, I workshopped and, and uh, researched and found a person and interviewed a bunch of people. And then the person that I found to be the dramaturg ended up giving me such a gorgeous um, assessment of the dramaturgical work that we could do together should I choose to hire him into the project. I was so, I felt so, um, I felt like a kismet feeling with wow. this man. And it was, you know, it's like when you go on a date with someone and you're like, <gasps> like I felt like that about him artistically. And I was just blown away. He's not at all who I thought I was looking for to join me in the project, but dang it, Joe Langworth, he's he's my dude. He is my, my dramaturg for Baggage at the Door for life. I trust him implicitly. And very well. Yeah. Uh, and what was that experience like the first time that you performed it in front of an audience? I got to tell you, the first time, the baby time in the, the Dixon Place Lounge was one of the most, it'll be, it's one of the most magical nights of my, my world, my whole existence, because it was the first time that I was offering the piece, right? I had no idea what I was doing. I was going on sheer pluck, right? And they set the space. It's the Dixon Place Lounge. Yeah, it was like I know it. Yeah. 35 seats max. They were standing room only, 85 people out the door. It had, I had a wonderful showing. I had a lot of people come and saw. Okay. Excuse me for interrupting, but where did you find the audience? For, uh, was it uh, friends, family, fellow artists? Uh, or uh, how did people know about it? Having 10 collaborators helps. But, you know, you end up kind of. I think the more that you talk about your work, the more people become interested in you either as a person or as an, a creator or as the work itself. And people are curious. So I got lucky with a, a first at bat with a bunch of curious listeners. And then my work family showed up for me at, at my place where I used to work in the East Village, Cafe Mogador. I worked there for years and years and they helped make time for me to create the piece. And then they showed up in droves to support me. And then they, they hosted an after party at like that Chinese restaurant down the way where they had the private rooms. So when I showed up with my rolling suitcases to my own party, it was like the most beautiful welcoming. You know, that I can never top that. That's like a, the perfect, the perfect hallelujah, you did it moment. And I, I have them to thank for it. <laughs> well, what was the Colorado experience like for you to take this outside of New York and to take this pretty much to an audience who doesn't know anything about you. Ah, that, that was the thing, right? It not only validated my work as a writer, because I got in based on 
drafting a submission. So that's a totally different style of writing, pitching myself as a writer and saying, I need this space in the Colorado footlands where the cherry trees are uh, to like, you know, like ruminate and whatever, you know, like you just say whatever and get, get yourself the opportunity. But then when I got there, I realized that it wasn't just about rewriting Baggage at the Door after the one festival. It was about sharing Baggage at the Door with people who I didn't know. And could it, could it serve, would it work? I'm happy to report that it did. And it's another plate where you just, you just sheer pluck and you find opportunities, an art gallery that I didn't even know was there. You know, just one of those incredible moments that you magic into being. They set the place up with 50 seats. They had to go downstairs twice for chairs. It was, and that I got lucky because it was a Paonia, Colorado has a reputation for being an artistic uh, crossroads Mm -hmm. hub. And so an actor showed up with a product to share and people went, oh, cool, and came. And then what I learned from doing this work in a completely random space, completely, you know, pushing it into being on my own with help, of course, but like literally dragging it onto the stage myself was not only A, I could do it and B, that the show worked, but that the universal themes that are within Baggage at the Door as a text resonated far outside the city. And that was really cool and very important for me as a creator. What has surprised you the most that you've learned about yourself from this whole project, uh, from start to where you are at this very moment? That while I can do it all, I shouldn't. Interesting. There is, there is, I have found, I have found that while I can do many tasks that are involved in a self-production element, it doesn't give me a lot of time to enjoy the process, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know. And it's funny because then you're like, no, but the creative product that you're sharing, it's resonating. People are living, you know, everyone is plotting. But but when you don't have the ch- time to literally experience those individual joys, then you end up missing them. So you end up getting FOMO like while you're doing the thing, which is a, an interesting experience. But, you know, are you talking about letting go or are you talking about delegating or what specifically are you really talking about at this at this point? I think it's delegating. I think it's delegating, but it's tricky, right? Because when you are one when you're a one person act, you have to find the right collaborators. And I've been so lucky up until you know, m- more recent opportunities that have come up that finding the right collaborators to to elevate the piece higher and higher, it changes the nature. These are no longer people that I, you know, played in the sandbox with, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have to, you have to retool what collaboration means every time, especially when you're delegating, because you, when you're used to doing it and you're passing the reins to somebody else, your expectation for either a timeline or a final output, we're talking business now, but you know, it's different. So that, that's what I have been most interested and surprised to learn about myself. Because, you know, like you said, I wear a lot of hats these days and I'm looking forward to taking a few off. Oh, good for you. Um, I do want to let everybody know who's watching that all of the details will be on my YouTube channel. Uh, so uh, we're going to encourage everyone to get there. And I can't wait to see it. Um, yeah, so um, how did this production come about? AMT Theater on 45th Street between 8th and 9th, next to Schmackery's Cookies. It's the in the housed in the former Davenport Theater space. I love, uh, it's no longer Davenport's? No, it is AMT Theater. 
wow, I know exactly where it is. I've seen many shows there, but I didn't realize that it was no longer Davenport's. Yes, uh, that changed hands during the pandemic and during the pandemic with the opportunity, they did a gut overhaul of the, the main theater space. The upstairs space is not part of it right now. It's just the main space. Cause I know people remember the Davenport had two spaces. Mm -hmm. So we're talking the main stage area, the, the long, narrow. Great space. Area. Great space and wonderful. So I happen to know personally the people who were involved with that um, renovation. And I gathered my pluck, asked for a meeting and marched in. And since I knew Tony Sportiello personally, can I get you a coffee? Can I, can I have your ear for a coffee? And I pitched in the show with the theater in complete disarray. I mean, exposed beams. I mean, no electrical. We sat there with like a, like a ghost light, like truly. And he told a story uh, for the opening night curtain speech where I, he tells the story in a slightly different way, but he, he says that I basically announced that I would do my show at his theater, which is a fun <laughs> way for him to remember it. But you know, he's probably not too far off. A little bit manifestation works. Um, and if you have friends who are creating a beautiful, awesome theater space and their mission is slated as being, you know, they want it to be a crossroads in Midtown for, for young creators. I said, hi, choose me. Good for you. Um, I asked earlier what the biggest surprise was that you learned about yourself. What has surprised you most about how audiences are responding to this piece? This is the main stage draft, right? Which is very, it's like same, same, but different from the living room reading that happened at the Dixon Place Lounge, which is also different from the one festival version. What is surprising me the most is that I had received some feedback that, that um, as we talk about these four near-death experiences that the character went through and then has like trouble processing and it's kind of sabotaging her life, right? People were very curious to hear the details. We love a survival story and we wanna know what exactly happened? Wait, you got hit by the A train? Like people want to know. And that makes sense. So I satisfied these desires in the script. And now what I'm wondering is, did I give away too much? Or am I just getting a slightly different read? Because it used to be that people would fill in the blanks a little bit for themselves because it was more, it was more, you know, oblique. It was like not as obvious. And so instead, what I'm having is people come up to me relating to the individual near-death experiences that the girl talks about. So what's surprising for me still is that people come up with slightly different than they used to, where they're like, oh, this really resonates with me because of whatever. Now I'm having New Yorkers coming up to me saying, oh my gosh, I also have a problem with Januaries. And I'm like, what's your trauma? And they're like, oh, you know, and then people share... And one of the whole points of the show and, and my, my wish for the piece is that it encourages this kind of safe space, communal sharing and processing because, you know, otherwise, where are we going to do it? Um, this is a new piece, uh, this fairly new piece for you, but, the, but, but do you see or can you picture other actresses taking this show and uh, having other productions of this? It has been a long-standing goal for the writers, for me um, in particular, and for my dramaturgist to find a way for licensing to permit another human to inhabit this role. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I, I've, I've had to explain, yes, but I, I need to, I, I need to do it. You know, it is still a personal story to me. It's and so, story. Yeah, yeah, your... It's mine, even though I wrote it to be built for somebody else to do. I would love that. It is something that I definitely have on the horizon. I have an opportunity to present it in Mexico. I've had somebody talk with me about Korea. I mean, it's interesting that this little story, this specific New Yorker's story has other resonation in other places. I probably can't perform it in Korean, but I might have a chance to perform it in, in Spanish in Mexico, in Guadalajara. And if that's possible, and then I can pass it on to somebody else and the show gets a life without me, that would be wonderful. I would love if the healing nature of baggage at the door and the processing within it could be shared well past my opportunity to perform in the piece itself. That would be great. It's wow, amazing. Well, I want to thank you for doing the show today. I, I can't believe that the hour has gone by so quickly. It's an hour. Uh, and I am very respectful of not only your time, but everyone who tunes in. I'm going to say my closing remarks, and then I'm going to turn it over to you. You've got the final word. It can be about anything that we spoke about today that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't talk about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with. And when you say goodbye, we're going to leave the audience with a little teaser about the show. Uh, so we've got that queued up and ready to go. Uh, but uh, you are a delight, and I am so thrilled that you said yes uh, to being here today, and you are worth celebrating. I always say it's about celebrating artists and their body of worth. And so thank you for allowing me to do that today. And Richard Hillman, thank you for reaching out. Uh, you've got a great publicist, I will tell you that. One of the best in the business. Um, I end every show by telling everyone to go out and do something nice for somebody else without expecting anything in return. Pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. I always advise everyone to go, go to Facebook and reach out to the fourth name that pops up and reach out with a phone call. Not an email message, not a text message, not a private inbox message, but a phone call. And let that person know the impact that they've made on your life. Uh, and by doing so, you're going to make an impact on their life. I have a dear friend, Sean Moniger, and he always says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different sized boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that note, I'm going to leave the screen. And it's all yours, Dana. And thanks again for being here. You've got the final word. How to follow Richard Skipper's incredible benediction into the world. I want to say thank you to everyone who supports Richard and his incredible work here and for all of the support that you give any independent artist who's striving to create art that moves you. If you're not there, it doesn't matter what we make. And so thank you for that. Any artist out there who's nervous to share your work, trust that if you build it, they will come. Your message is important. We are here to be entertained by your art and your magic. And if you're curious to join me in my magic, Baggage at the Door runs through November 16th at the absolutely beautiful AMT Theater, where you get to see a little bit of my baggage and hopefully leave a little less of your own as you walk out the door. Thank you so much, everybody. Bye. The only way that I know how to reconnect is to disconnect.
got one foot on the gas and one foot on the brakes, and I'm just stuck. Oh, I can trust you that you'll like what you see here. How do I know you won't rip apart my fragile Thank you